Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash Radio. Aloha! Welcome to BC Radio Live for Wednesday, March 19th. We have an unbelievably packed wall-to-wall, not a second to spare show for you tonight with music and films next to the day. First up is New York City indie producer and musician Martin Beatty. His most recent album is Sirens of the Apocalypse. We'll also talk with punk rock and roll band the AKAs about their new album just released yesterday. Everybody makes the noise. Shifting to film, DC Magazine's very own Lucas McNally will be on the show talking about his short film, Gravidon. Finally, we'll talk with Mark Fussier, producer and director of the documentary Westinghouse. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hello, Eric. Hello. Don't have time to talk. <laughs> That's true. Also with us tonight is Lisa McKay, the executive editor of BC Magazine. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. Well, Hi, Eric. As, as Eric mentioned, we are, as, as we both mentioned, it is a pretty crammed show tonight. So let's uh, let's get right to it. I'm going to play a little sample of music, and we'll jump right to the first guest. That was Goth Chick 98 from Martin Beesey from his latest album, Sirens of the Apocalypse. Martin has been an indie fringe record producer since 1981. He's worked with artists from Iggy Pop, The Ramones, and White Zombie to John Zorn, Herbie Hancock, and Sonic Youth. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Martin. Hi, Philip. How you doing? I'm doing very well. It's good to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Martin, hello. It's Eric Olson. Great to talk with you. Hey, Eric been getting your emails about your uh your regular uh but uh, you know regular over the long haul uh, performances since since we worked with you i wish i had done the interview but uh, all the way back to the encyclopedia of record producers right right and uh the paul our, our mutual friend paul verna interviewed you for that oh that's right i do remember that now i mean i remember the encyclopedia and stuff. I, I it's, kind of forgot about the interview. Nine years ago, I, I can't, I can't even believe it. But yeah, that's where I first heard of you, and then, and he did a great job, and and it, it's it's so interesting, and, and I don't want to take too much time, but and I also don't want to take time away from your current project. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to talk about that first, or just a, a, a brief capsule of your kind of your amazing journey through the uh, Brooklyn <laughs> underground involving. Uh, some real greats, Bill Laswell, of course, and yeah. Materiel, and and uh, if you want to just tell us maybe how you got into it. You're you're a producer, you're an engineer, you're a musician, and just been a kind of a keystone of that, of uh, the uh, what the uptown sound, um, downtown. I, I, yeah, I forget down, which part of town. Yeah, well, downtown, I guess. In the in the early days, there really wasn't uptown, and that was like the early hip hop stuff. Um, I mean, honestly, I really kind of just drifted with the wind. Um, the, the only, well, the one important choice I made was to not go into co- go to college. Actually, it was just I just jumped right into music. That I think was the best choice because my drifting in the wind actually kind of 
landed in a few good places. There was a lot going on in the late 70s, well, well very late 70s, 79, pretty much the 80s. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough, especially at that age, you know, you just kind of drift into things. And also at that age, like literally starting in, into music around 17, um, you know, with the enthusiasm and the sort of, you know, wide open, you know, like a, a, a blank slate in my brain of what I could do, I pretty much just did, as, as, as I do now, is whatever I can, you know, I'm, I'm creative, whatever needs to be done, I kind of... Um, you know, like even that the song, the clip you guys just played, uh, Goth Chick 98, what's funny about that is it's really nothing like the rest of the record, but it's sort of like, oh, here's this niche of stuff that's going on. I felt like being referential to it. It's just like a, an, an opportunity, an act of opportunity. So really when I started in, when I was 17, there was definitely no plan of being a record producer. So it was really like, what can I do? And I realized pretty quickly that I could almost show up at this, any local show and you know some of, some of my favorite local bands and just offer to do live sound and pretty much always the answer was yes and so those bands turned out to be like lounge lizards um dna um james blood almer you know so like good stuff and i realized there was a, a need and i filled it and then sooner or later i was like well maybe some people would like to record and you know little by little that just led to the right people because you know i was you know, taking some action, I guess. And there wasn't a lot of recording action at that time. It was pretty much, you know, the, the major leagues and humongous studios or people just taping things at uh, at shows live. No one was really doing a lot of multi-track recording, you know. As I understand it, a real turning point was when Eno came in. You were doing sound for, a, was it a material show? Yeah, that was material. Um, I, I can't remember if he'd been, because he kind of poked around a bunch, meaning he would just kind of show up and I'd, and I can't remember if he was poking around a lot. I can't remember if it was the first show that he attended. But one of the shows, he just kind of stood by me, sort of behind me. Lurking. What's that? Lurking. Lurking and kind of watching. And um, I think he referred to my job. But I turned around and he just kind of stared at me and said, Brilliant. <laughs> absolutely brilliant and at the time and I thought he was talking about me since then I've kind of thought maybe he just thought the show was brilliant but <laughs> I don't know for a few years I've kept thinking he thought my live sound was brilliant but actually you know I, I I met him the next day for tea he seemed interested but he was really interested in the whole scene back then I mean good thing that he latched onto, onto us it's funny because us material we were definitely a little more well, I guess we could say proggy now, or a little more like serious, serious music, uh, in quotes, you know, I mean... Well, very arty, really. Yeah, very arty, because when you think of the other things that were catching people's ear was either sort of um, dysfunctional jazz, like James Chance and the Concordia. <laughs> That's a great term, dysfunctional Or, or, or dysfunctional noise indie rock, like, right. like DNA. And, like, and you funk, know. the funk element, too. And funk, did, did you say funk or punk? Yeah, I said, and, and you had a funk element as well. Yeah, there was funk. Well, that's because Bill with Laswell, he, his background was in, in funk. I mean, when he was he was a kid, he was playing in funk bands for, like, dances and stuff. So, you know, he, he that's where he had his, you know, he had his funk chops, of course, and he was, like, bringing that into it. And, you know, Bill had a real interest in finding great musicians, which was a little different than what was really happening um, on the Lower East Side then. The Lower East Side then with punk and No Way was kind of all about attitude and very confrontational. And that's cool. It's just that, you know, Bill had a different take on it. And that's also what made Bill a little, well, what we were doing a little suspect and outsider from everything else. You know, people like Lydia Lunch, it was about attitude. It wasn't really about, like, you know, hitting the hitting all the notes, you know? Sure, sure. Well, because we're uh, so pressed here and we don't want to leave out key periods, we, you ended up running, uh, owning and running, uh, just a legendary studio. And, and as far as I know, you still do, right? In Brooklyn, that's BC. Yeah, I still have it. I mean, I'm trying to make the place go through some changes, but um, I still do it and still have it. And there are pictures of it, the legendary BC, at martinbc.com. I'm looking at them right now. looks very stark and cave-like. I've heard of, there's all kinds of winding tunnels and whatnot in there. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's an amazing spe space in, in that sense. People get lost, go around the wrong corner, go up the wrong stairs. I'm just very lucky. I mean, everyone 
continuously refers to it as the basement, but it's actually not a basement, thankfully, you know, because of humidity and all kinds of other issues. Right. It's really the first floor, but essentially it feels like a basement, but old, old, old walls, cryptic in, in every sense of the word, I guess. And, you know, that's great for vibe. It's also great for sound because all those large rooms, which aren't like scientifically, um, you know, designed, they, they actually benefit from imperfections, you know, the, the walls being kind of crooked and weird. And, what know. do you do about the uh, about echo, though? I would think you'd have to, to damp or something. Well, that's that suits my personality because I, I tend I tend to go for a more ambient, spacious sound. And, I like and too, actually. That that suits some tastes more than others, and I, I try to I try to rein it in because that's the kind of thing that shouldn't be just unbridled, and that's also the kind of thing that goes in and out of like taste, in and out of fashion. Sure. So the '80s was fine, all about that, and, and then there was this sort of anti-ambience forces that gathered and the dry tones, and then again yeah, everything kind of dried up. Like I remember even in New York, it was like really the the almost anti-80s contingent, like people like John Spencer and stuff like that, had a very un 80 sound. It was supposed to be kind of dry. It was almost going back to more like what the 70s were like. Right. The 70s. Right. You know, they were fighting that sort of like overproduced, over big, overhyped sound that the 80s. But but the 80s, that kind of suited my brain a little. I like things being a, a bit bigger than life, you know. So just so we can move on to the to the record cuz I really want to make sure we get to that and talk about it what can you tell me uh, I hate to put you on the spot maybe just two or three I mean what are your absolutely most memorable productions what really stands out in your mind um well recent stuff just because of maybe personal reasons I would have to say the Dresden dolls from the from the recent crop I I think the the reason that's a favorite is cuz it had such a grassroots Big hit too, pretty big hit, right? I would say. I mean, I don't know, but big for the field. Yeah, well, big for the field. I mean, it's not. I'm not even sure it's as big as Gogo Bordello is now, for instance. But definitely approaching that, you know. And it seemed very grassroots. It seemed like people were really inspired, and it was a little bit more than just about the music. People seemed to see some. And and when I say people, I I do mean very young people, and that actually was kind of exciting to me too, because it seemed like there was a real passion there, and I kind of realized that that's. That that's always what motivated me, you know, as a producer was sort of like the, the social context of what we were doing. Even though no wave stuff, like I said about the, having an, being about attitude and stuff like that, it had a social context that was sort of exciting and it had something to say, you know. Was, All right, well let's vibrant. talk about this. This is this is a really interesting recording. I love the packaging. Wow, it's really beautiful. Is that the same woman throughout? Yes, it is. Who is she? Um, this woman, Ego Sensation, who does like performance art in New York, and I've known her for a little while. I've also recorded various bands that she's in. She's in this band, White Hills. She is a changeling. Well, it's funny because I had no thought of. I was originally going to have a different woman for each each uh, each uh, picture, you know, because each picture relates to a specific song, and you can actually find the title like woven into the picture, right? Carefully, like like where's Waldo or whatever, you know. Hand scripted. Yes, exactly. And um, I was going to do a different woman for each picture, and I just stood there, sat there, in one of her performances as she went through all these different personas and changed clothing, and I was like, you know what? Maybe that's just a, a perfect convenience. Maybe it's a great concept to have it all be the same woman, like morphing. And it's actually, well, it's also convenient, keeps it simple. To <laughs> yeah. I'll be one person instead of hiring, you know, ten models or something, you know? I think it's very fitting. It's very apt. And, and you really do have to think about it to realize that it is the same person. I mean, you've re- got to really concentrate on the face because her hair changes and the outfits change and the attitude changes. And so, of course, that relates to the fact, uh, to, to the essence of this, which is, this is a, a series of encounters, uh, more or less real life, I would imagine, fictionalized to a certain extent, right. that you've had with women over the years, right? Yeah, exactly. Fictionalized, because, you know, it's the usual thing with songwriting. It starts with a simple context that, that's on your mind, and then you kind of make it a little bigger and amplify it, and, you know, of course, I guess like all fiction, really, but, it, yeah, everything sort of has a true root, not because I really intend to, it's just that, that I find my, I found myself you know, my mind, especially it's the issue of women and gen, gender relations and all that stuff, that's the stuff that seems to occupy so much of the, the brain time, you know? <laughs> yes, yes well, of us all, you know? I mean, yeah, so I, who and, can escape? Yeah, exactly. And, and definitely not me. So I'm just, you know, I just 
all the songs, I, I didn't intend to write a song where all the, all the women, all the songs had a central female theme, but then I kind of realized that they all did and they were all different. It was all different kinds of women or a different kind of slant. Um, and, and the record, and that also represents the fact that the, the record was done over like eight years. So there's a lot of people I've met and, you know, a lot of women I've met. It's kind of an expanded 88 lines about 44 women. You remember that one? Um, what was that? Oh, it was a song back um, originally. It was done by a few people, but I think it was originally The Nails. And it was this really uh, minimalist electro background. And the guy just chants two lines each <laughs> for yeah. 44 women. And it's real bouncy. It was 80s, kind of late 80s. It's really funny, but it's also, you know, kind of terrifying. I mean, it's just this whole range of women. Imagine 44 women, you know, yeah. every kind of personality. And there's just two lines to each, and it ends up yeah. being a song. It's really quite funny. And, and the, just, the band was The Nails. I bet you can find it on YouTube. Uh, let me jump in here. We're coming pretty close to the end. I want to play another clip from the album. Uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about this, Martin. Uh, this is uh, Mary Maudlin. Well, actually, I, I, I kind of would, because Mary Maudlin is a take on Mary Magdalene, you know, Jesus' pal. And uh, so the idea, and it's funny because the photographer, this woman, Tasia, who took the picture of, of Mary Maudlin in the, in the, in the artwork, sort of elaborated, yes, she's, she's saintly and sluttish, I forget exactly the word she used, but, but unaware of both. And you can see it in the artwork. It's this girl who's sort of divine and profane at the same time, unaware. And uh, that's what it's based on. That is quite a dichotomy. I love that. Yeah. That's for, for as dichotomous as you could get, I guess. And that's, uh, that's Mary Martin. Super cool and trippy. Do you have a favorite woman, Martin? And then we have to move on. A favorite woman? Uh, of the bunch. Of the bunch? Oh, um, Buddhist Girl is my favorite one, I suppose. <laughs> cool, that's a great song. People are just going to have to pick it up to check it out. Now, I, I see the, um, the release parties aren't until May, is that right? That's right, to coincide with the street date when it will be in stores. Ah, so it's not out till May. Um, it's available digitally now, you know, on iTunes and stuff, and then stores a little later. Okay, well, let's send them to your site. It's probably the easy, easiest address is martinbc.com from there. They can get your MySpace and your YouTube, right? Yes. And, and you do an audio blog, right? That's right, and that's also a podcast on iTunes, the same thing. The podcast is called uh, Music Nations. Excellent. Well, we encourage everyone to check out martinbc.com, and we really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on your tremendous career, even if you didn't intend it intend for it to be so. It's really quite impressive and aggregate, and, and I love the record. You know, I mean, we're talking kind of weird and and uh, and disjointed, but in a very interesting and and uh, intelligent and artistic way. Excellent. Thank you very much, Eric and Philip. That's awesome. Excellent. We'll talk to you again, Martin. Thanks. Thank you. Good night. Bye bye. Well, Sirens of the Apocalypse is available now digitally. Uh, you can find a link to it on Amazon at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, or do check out Martin's website. That's martinbcbisi.com. The AKAs are everywhere. Their new album, Everybody Makes Some Noise, was just released yesterday, I believe. Let's start with a clip from their new single, Dead Flowers Forever.
Well, that was Dead Flowers Forever from the AKAs, and we've got uh, some of them on the phone here to talk with us about the new album. Welcome to BC Radio Live. Hey, guys. What's up? This is Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. I think we've got Josie on the line as well. Oh, I hope so. Uh, am I on the, on the line? You are. You are. Oh. We have Mike E. and Josie Outlaw from the yeah. AKAs. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am super. And first of all, let me publicly say I completely screwed up last week, and I publicly apologize. (laughs) These guys called in. We were already doing an interview, and and, uh, Gary from Ravy said they were frightened. They were scared away. They didn't know what to do. They ran away. And, man, that makes me feel bad. So, anyway, I really do apologize about that. I'm really glad you could make it. Yeah, no problem. about Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. More more than you needed to know. Yeah, you heard this rather proper uh, Texas woman talking about her Facebook experience. and I bet that fit right in with your daily lives. Yeah, no. no well, before we go on, no worries. And thank you guys so much for having us on. We're super excited. And I, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely awesome, especially it's very timely because the record did come out yesterday. So we're excited. I've heard that. And you know what? Just before the show, I was sitting here and I listened to the whole thing all the way through, and I really love it. It's super, it's energetic, it's tuneful, it is rocking, and I really do hear the comparison. I mean, I really do hear the combination of, of the, uh, the 60s, uh, you know, keyboard bass, the, the Farfisa um, sound uh, or, or electric piano, and uh, uh, with, with the 80s punk, of course, and put together and brought up to date, and it's really good, good vocals, and, and and excellent playing, and I really enjoy it. Cool, thank you awesome. very much. <laughs> so where were you guys? Now, I heard something about Erie, PA, which is only like, what, 90 miles from here? I'm in the Cleveland area. Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually, um, we played there, we played a record release show there on Sunday, and uh, Erie is actually my hometown, so. You and the Wonders. Uh, we just watched that movie today. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> yeah. I am vibing on you heavily. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. It was just on to, yeah, just on, on cable today. And uh yeah, that's that's nuts. And and Cleveland is uh when I was growing up in Erie there was really not a lot of music going on. Um so we would go to Cleveland, Buffalo or Pittsburgh for shows. So Cleveland is where I saw my first real show and did my first stage dive. Whoa, who was it? It was uh the show was the Circle Jerks in seven seconds. Wow. Now that's some classic punk. Yeah, yeah. Some so classic I, West Coast punk. Yeah, it was a, it was an awesome show. I was thirteen or fourteen and completely horrified but super stoked. <laughs> I can imagine. Wow. Yeah, well get this. I DJ'd a frat party at UCLA that the Circle Jerks played at. Whoa, that's crazy. How was that? Yeah, that was the, my crazy 80s. Yeah, I, I was a DJ in L.A. We did a lot of college parties and a lot of uh, showbiz parties and stuff. We'd often work with bands, and I was always trying to bring in the craziest bands we could find. And uh, we did this one annual party at a frat. It was, it, was, uh, it was their punk party, and so every year they had a real punk band. And uh, I remember working with the Circle Jerks. Yeah, uh, Morris. Uh, what's, his, yeah. what's his first name? Keith, Keith Morris, yeah. yeah. And he worked yeah. at a record store right down the street, too. Man, it is a small world. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right on. So, cool. Well, Cleveland rocks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ian Hunter said that. Yeah, right on. <laughs> so now, let, uh, let's tell. Uh, the, the record is out now, right? It's on Met- Metropolis, and it's available? Yeah, you can uh, you can get it in stores as of today, well, as of yesterday, and uh and it's uh, on iTunes, and yeah, it's uh, it's everywhere. Excellent. <laughs> there is, of course, a link from blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio uh, as well, so that people can buy it from Amazon if they want. Oh, yeah, wow. and and as always, we want to refer, you, you guys have a bunch of sites going on, you got the MySpace and everything, but probably the easiest for people to remember is you're at www.theakas.com. And in fact, I'm looking at the tour link right now. It looks like you got a really big tour coming up starting the 25th in State College. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to talk about that, Josie? Um, yeah, well, we're, we're starting out in State College and we're routing out to do Bamboozle Left in California. We're going to be playing on the second day, April 6th. Um, 
So we'll be doing that, and then we meet up with a band called The Phenomenots, and uh, we'll be doing a whole, I think, six-week tour with them. Yeah, all the dates aren't posted yet, so they're still coming in. Wow. Oh, yeah, I see that, right. And, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a jam-packed tour. You guys are going to be out for quite a while. Yeah, then we, uh, well, that ends in California, so we still are going to have to route back home and then we we uh, do the last half of Warp Tour, so we're the rest of our lives are cashed in until the end of summer. <laughs> wow! Well, there's worse things if you're a working band, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are worse things than to be working. Now, where are you guys based now? Uh, we're out of Philadelphia right now. Ah, who's from yeah. Philadelphia? Um. Well, actually, none of us are from Philadelphia. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But that's where we all live now. We're we're all from different areas. Like I grew up in uh in New Jersey and South Jersey and Mike's from Erie, Pennsylvania, but like we have um like our bass players from Texas and our drummers from Minneapolis and stuff. So we're we we really are everywhere. <laughs> we're from everywhere at least. And, yeah. and that's part of the name. Hmm, very yeah, apt. Yeah. When, uh, <laughs> when everybody ended up when we ended up with this lineup of people we were living in south jersey and we all ended up living in this tiny little house together and that was that was an extreme experience so um after i mean i in some forms of that lineup we lived there for like two years so um philadelphia was a really good nearby city we all you know we started the band in new york city and we're just kind of needing to get back in more of an urban environment. We are living in the in the middle of nowhere. So um that's that's actually one of the things that I think is kind of inspiring and interesting about the record is that living in those kinds of conditions we were at kind of one of the most miserable points of our <laughs> musical and life careers. So you know, we ended up writing what we think is a pretty proactive, positive, like inspiring record. So that's that's pretty cool. It is. It's very positive. It's very very up. It's not you know Pollyanna-ish or anything. And and obviously you got the you know you kind of got the ragged edge of of the punky feel. But but yeah, it's very positive. It's very it's very. Uh, there's a lot of movement to it. Everything moves forward. One song really just goes leads into the next and and it all fits together really well. You don't you, what I was thinking of it doesn't it's not that you sound like it but it was reminding me of of one of the real good uh, any number of the really good Ramones albums where just one just blows right into the next one, you know. And yeah, you guys awesome. it's not the same sound cuz you guys have a lot more of the keyboard. And that's you, right? Josie, you're the keyboard player? Yeah, that's me. How did you arrive at that combination? It's fairly unusual these days. It's almost like a... I was thinking of uh, like the Flesh Tones or... Remember early Green on Red uh, out of L.A.? They, they had a, a, a keyboard-dominating sound, too, but but in a, in a punky kind of feel. Yeah, well, we uh, the keyboard that I use is like an old Farfisa organ. I knew it. I said that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just we just wanted more of like a like a cool like '60s sound with like you know more modern stuff with it. I I, I don't know. I don't really know how yeah, to. Uh, we we mix it up. Like I think the first record was far piece on the whole thing, but this record we took the took it as an opportunity to kind of mix it up. So there's like yeah, we use a couple of different sounds. Like we have like a piano on one song too, and then more of like a synth sound on another song so it's a little mix of everything it's very well produced who's the producer on this um alex newport yeah he's got some pretty big credits doesn't he yeah he did um uh at the drive-in and um mars volta yeah yeah those are those are the kind of ones he's most known for that's interesting that's they're pretty different from you yeah, well, I think that it, uh, what's what's cool about Alex is that he's kind of most notable for, like, he, he's kind of an old-school, like, stubborn-minded guy where he doesn't, he doesn't use a lot of, like, modern, like, digital stuff. I mean, he still records that way, but he's got an old-school attitude, and, he, and 
his approach is really to capture the energy of a band, and that was something that was really important for us because going into a record, if if we made a record that just sounded really clean and pretty, like it's just not gonna. It would be like a bad new wave record. <laughs> we, you know, we wanted to really do what we could to capture the energy and the urgency of the of our live show and keep it kind of loose and and rough and and he really understands that. So so that was that was a cool marriage to work with him. And you know, we did a lot of stuff that we've never done as a band before when we recorded. We recorded like live as a f- full band just to get the drum tracks and you know took a lot of takes just because we were playing it too well <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of times he would stop and he's he's very british and he would be like it's too perfect play it again <laughs> so, uh, play it again with <laughs> errors a little, a little crappier yeah so we were Flop it up. uh ready to strangle him at points <laughs> well that's the ideal band producer relationship Exactly, exactly. You don't pay somebody to uh, pat you on the back and tell you that you're doing awesome. So he definitely motivated us in several unique ways. Well, I think it came out really well. It really did. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, seriously, that really is a, a, a one of the several kind of key approaches that producers take. I don't know if you were listening when we were talking to, to Martin, but I was the um, editor and kind of the head writer of the Encyclopedia Record Producers, so I did, I mean, literally hundreds of interviews, and, and kind of one of the threads that ran through was a lot of these guys, their whole approach was to, was to in a sense, irritate people, you know, irritate the band, because they, they thought they wouldn't be complacent then, kind of keep them on edge, maybe come up with new things, they may do something literally just out of anger with the producer that would be new and different, and, you know, just to keep people on edge. I think there's directors who, you know, who approach actors that way, too. Yeah, that's really interesting, and that, I mean, I guess I've never thought of it, like, straight up that way, but that's, that was definitely... That was his thing? Definitely did that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you both do other things, right? Mike, you're a, a tattoo artist, and yeah. Josie, you're, you're a, uh, a, you have a cosmetics line, right? Yeah, I just started my own cosmetics line a couple months back, and it's called Red Letter Girl. Um, it's, uh has like all like animal friendly products nothing's tested on animals and uh nothing comes in like uh actual like boxes or packaging it all has like little cosmetics pouches so it's all like eco-friendly and nothing like to throw away and everything so cool well where can people yeah. find it i think you have a myspace page yeah i have a my myspace page it's uh myspace.com slash red red letter girl and um i'll have a website up soon it's going to be redlettergirlcosmetics.com very so, cool yeah mike yeah. you're mr tattoo uh that's dr tattoo no, oh sorry uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i've been tattooing for years and uh and um i have also i also do design and artwork and design and um do they allow that in Erie? No, no, <laughs> there's none of that in Erie. No. That's why I moved away. Um, no, so yeah, I keep busy. I've done stuff for, I do mostly music stuff with with the design stuff. I've done stuff for, you know, a lot of bands like Fall Out Boy, My Chemical Romance, and some big stuff like that. But um, tattooing's awesome because it's something that, well, both of the things are, and same with Josie, we've, you know, because bands don't often make any money anymore. <laughs> We're uh, kind of forced to come up with unique and creative ways to maintain a full-time touring schedule. So um, it's cool because we can all kind of make our own schedules and, you know, work from the road. And I, I bring my stuff with me and end up tattooing in the backs of clubs or, you know, ho- hotel rooms overnight and stuff like that. So How cool. Yeah. Well, I wish I wish we had more time. Uh, well, well, we'll bring them back. Yeah, we have a we have a packed show, but I would actually like to to spend more time chatting. Yeah. We'll uh, in the meantime, though, anytime. Cool. Good luck with the tour and the record. I think it's really great. Awesome. Yeah, we'll Thanks see so you much. in Cleveland. <laughs> that would be super. Yeah. When are you going to be here? Um. um I don't well, know they're they're coming to Denton actually very very soon. That's just right up the road for me down here in Texas. So. Oh, you were just at oh, Peabody's yeah. on the in February, end of February. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll definitely be back. There isn't a date posted yet, but I know we're playing in Cincinnati, so there's got to be a Cleveland date right after. 
All right. Well, good luck with the tour, you know, and and uh, with the cosmetics and with the tattooing and all that cool lifestyle stuff. And I hope you even make some money and everything. Yeah, that would be Well, if everyone buys our records, that would help. There you go. They should. Everyone should. Everybody Makes Some Noise is the name of the new album from the AKAs, and you can order it from Amazon, as usual, at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And uh, check out the band's site at theakas.com. That's T-H-E-A-K-A-S dot com. Well, at the halfway point in the show, we shift gears to film. Lucas McNally writes a feature for BC Magazine called The Uber Indie Project, and he's got a few award-winning indie projects of his own. His current short film, Gravidas, is a semifinal selection in the Now Film Festival. Uh, welcome to BC Radio Live, Lucas. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Lucas. Hey. Nice talking to you. Nice and talking Lisa, to you. Lisa normally just sits here so quietly and takes it all in, but I, I think she she needs to step forward as co- co-host here. I know that Lisa is very interested in indie film herself. Yes, I am, and I'm really glad to have Lucas on the show tonight. Um, Lucas, I want to talk about the film festival and Gravita in specific, but I, okay. first, I just want to um, go to, back to something that you mentioned to me yesterday, which is that you're a self-taught filmmaker, yeah. which I find very interesting. Um, and you started making films in college. So how did you happen to fall into filmmaking? Um, it was a really interesting thing. I was in radio, actually, and um, I had to take a required video course just to graduate. And the school said, hey, we're going to do a film festival senior year, and I decided, gee, that might be fun. This will be a good way to learn video. And I made a film, and I really kind of fell in love with it. Wow. So I pretty much spent my senior passion. year doing that. That's yeah. cool. So did did that cause you, did that make you change your major or did you just no uh, I was like it was final semester and I really didn't want to uh, yeah I didn't really want to back up and start all over again that's very cool so what what did you actually major in then I ended up majoring in uh, broadcasting oh well that's and I mostly and here yeah. you are yeah finally. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about Gravita. It's it's an absolutely wonderful little film. I really Thank enjoyed you. it. Um, the Now Film Festival is an online film festival, and tell us a little bit about how that works and what it means for you to have the film selected as a semifinalist in that. In that okay. Process. There are uh, 25 semifinalists, and it's been running since November, I believe. And what happens is every week they choose a semifinalist, and then it's featured on YouTube and MySpace for a week. And then they stay on YouTube and MySpace and on the webpage. And at the end of 25 weeks, there's a big voting period, and a certain number of finalists, which I believe is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, has a screening in Hollywood at one of the Academy Studios, the Academy Theaters. And then the winner gets a camera package of some kind. Wow, that's very neat. Um, yeah. So what... What kind of payoff is there for a filmmaker to get a film, a short film, shown in a venue like that? Um, really, the big payoff at this point, unless you win the camera package, which has a pretty obvious payoff, <laughs> is uh, you get that exposure. Um, Gravita has so far been seen, I think, like 21,000 times on MySpace and YouTube, and in comparison, we've We've printed 100 DVDs, and we haven't sold all of those yet. So the jump in exposure is, uh, is pretty huge for us. Talk a little bit about the film itself. How, how, did, um, how did it come about? I was going to ask you to talk about the process from conception to completion, but I thought the pun was a little too obvious. <laughs> uh, yeah. so well, it's, tell us the story. It started, um, I had insomnia, and that's usually where I get my good ideas. And I had this image of the old, the old like, 18th century or 19th century erotica photos where you have a woman from behind, and she's sort of sitting on a bed, and it was this really beautiful shot. And I thought what would be really interesting would be to build a film around that moment, which looks so calm and peaceful and erotic, and sort of build a really horrible scenario around that, where that instant is the only beautiful moment there. Mm. And so it started as this whole big thing about photography. And um, then we found out that we couldn't find an actress 
who was talented enough and good-looking enough to pull it off in the city, except for one, but she was pregnant. <laughs> and so it wouldn't work. And then in the process of talking to her about it, we ended up switching it to a pregnant woman, which solved all sorts of plot problems I had. <laughs> and uh, really, it went from there. And then Rachel Shaw, the actress, uh, spent about a month going back and forth with me on the script and explaining to me, uh, but first of all, what women think and what they feel about scenarios, and then how that changes with a pregnancy. Ah. That's very interesting to hear because one of the things that occurred to me as, as I was watching the film was how you sort of got pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought oh, that, that, came, that came through loud and clear, but it's very interesting to hear that you, you got a lot of feedback from her through that process. Yeah, I, without I, that, I would have been not good. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, men, men don't have that advantage. But um, so how hard is it to work in a short form? I know I've, I've heard writers say that short stories are much harder to do than novels because you've got such a, a little time to kind of accomplish. Right. So what are some of the challenges in telling at least part of a story in such a short period of time? The runtime on this is, what, 24 Yeah, it's like 22, 24 minutes, somewhere in there. Um, I think the trick for this was to get rid of all of, because normally if you were going to do a feature, I think you would have the scene where she gets pregnant and the guy leaves, and then you would have a scene at the end, and sort of the idea was to strip all of that away and say, what do we absolutely fundamentally need to tell the core story, Mm -hmm. which is her coming to terms with her pregnancy, and then do as much as you can of the other stuff with just hints of it. And really, I mean, you can have the scene where she gets pregnant and the guy leaves, but I mean, we can figure out that's happened. I mean, she's pregnant, we get it. Yeah. We, can, we don't really need that. And it fleshes out and we'll do more with her character, but you have to sort of figure out ways to do that quickly. Yeah. Well, so short films don't, haven't traditionally had much of a life beyond the festival circuit. And you right. mentioned before that this is really, this is getting seen a lot because it's online. And do you think that the Internet is going to become sort of a final destination for for filmmakers at any point in the near future? Oh, yeah. I think it'll be um, a destination for feature films as well. And you're already starting to see a little bit of that. The, uh, what is it, Four-Eyed Monsters is a feature film that I believe is showing on YouTube in its entirety. And I think you're going to see, I'd like to see people go into shorts a little bit more because the trend now seems that people are making shorts to show someone that they can make a feature. And not everyone's doing that, but a lot of people are doing that. And you can, you know, there's a lot of really great short story writers, to use your example, who never felt or rarely felt the... uh, the need to go into a novel and right. could tell beautiful stories in a short form. So I'd like to see the Internet sort of become a means for that. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it would be the, the, perfect, uh, the perfect venue for such a thing. Um, what, what are you working on right now? Are you, do you have more short films in the hopper? Uh, do you have a feature-length film in your future? What do, what do you what yeah. do? Happening. I'm working on a uh, feature-length script about a uh, cinephile who sort of comes to realize that his, or maybe he doesn't come to realize that his life doesn't have to be a uh, tragic, a tragic Bergman film. <laughs> and um, I'm working on a uh, web serial that I may or may not end up doing about a uh, guy who's in a battle of wits with a cat. <laughs> He'll lose. Yeah, yeah lose. lose all those battles at our house. I can tell you that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Working with animals—that seems like a big step. Yeah, we we had some animals on this short by accident, and uh, it ended up working out really well. We had uh, the location, the big uh, location. We got the lo- we got it, and my friend said, "Well, I'm going to be out of town. You have to feed the cats." And I said, well, yeah, sure, we can do that. And then they wouldn't stay out of the way, so we just put them in shots when we needed them. <laughs> and it really added, I think, a nice dimension. Um, let's see. So short films, 
um, looking looking at the internet as sort of a marketplace for that, I think is is a very exciting idea. Um, now you're based in where Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh, yes. Pittsburgh. So you've got a production company, Depress Productions. Right. Um, when you when you start out with a project, I mean, where where do you where do you begin? Um, how do you how do you go about getting people to work on your film? Um, I have. It's kind of a network of people. My first step is I sort of flesh out the idea, and I have a couple of people who I go to who are uh, under strict orders to not, you know, pander at all to me and to tell me if any idea is even remotely bad uh-huh. and to sort of be really, really, really harsh with me. And then it's a thing where um, you just go out and talk to people who who you've uh, seen in other projects. Um, I do some theater stuff in the city, and I usually get actors from the theater scene because I figure a theater actor can carry themselves um, over the course of a film maybe better than someone who's just starting to learn film acting. Yeah, yeah. Because they have all that training, and when you're working on a uh, budget and you don't have a whole lot of time, if you can get an actor who's not going to need as many takes yeah. as for then that's a lot. That's a big help. Yeah. What did this film cost? Uh, this film cost around twenty five hundred dollars. Well, that's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Figure it out by the minute, man. Whoa, yeah, that is about a hundred dollars a minute. Pretty impressive. About a hundred dollars a minute. Yeah. Um, and most of that was renting lights. Amazing. Because it was such a low light scenario, we needed a lot of uh, a lot of specific stuff. Yeah, you know, I. I was mentioning uh, before the show, or in the chat room, actually, I guess, that I, I, I watched this uh, about a week and a half ago, and I was just, as we were talking, going through nowfilmfestival.com, hint, hint, uh, and, and seeing it there again. And it really is a beautiful, beautiful film. I mean, it just seems like almost every scene is, is lit perfectly for photography, which is what I usually notice. Very nice. Yeah. Done. And all the credit to that would go to uh, Dave Egger and uh, Don Yaki, who did the cinematography and the lighting. The big light that everyone always talks about is there's a red light in the final scene, right. and that was 1,000% their idea. They sort of finished lighting the room, and I walked in, and I went, what is that? And they went, trust us, it'll look great. And I sort of looked at them, you know, like they had lost their minds. And I said, well, we'll see. And then Film, a collaborative process. Yeah, it's, and it's so collaborative, and you have to be able to, to let people to do that stuff. And uh, people keep saying, oh, I love the red light. It means this and it means that. And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's the red well, light I, district. It is. It's a little bit of the red light district. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are very much out of time. We're, uh, we're definitely trying to cram things in here. I'm glad we were able to get you on, though, Lucas. Well, he can stay on. We're talking with another filmmaker. Absolutely. Hang out. Maybe you can pop okay. in with a question as well. Uh, do check out Lucas's film, Gravita, on nowfilmfestival.com. Uh, Lucas also does write for DC Magazine, so at uh, blogcritics.org you'll, you'll definitely find links to Lucas uh, hither, thither, and yon. Congrats on, that, on the film, Lucas. That's really quite an achievement. Thank you so much. Well, Mark Fossler is the producer and director of the feature-length documentary Westinghouse about the life and times of George Westinghouse. Uh, let's jump right to it. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Mark. Well, thank you. I'm based out of Pittsburgh, too. This is a small world. Whoa! It was meant uh, to was, be. It was a little weird when I saw the uh, phone numbers lighting up the caller ID, and I thought, oh, no, this is, this is strange. These area, these area codes overlap. Do you know each other? Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> no, not really, no. But that could change. Well, Lucas is probably a little earlier in the process than you are, Mark, right? You you started probably somewhat similarly. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but actually I've been listening to the to the entire uh the entire show so far and uh somewhat similar. I I I'm also fairly self-trained. Um and I've been uh, doing filmmaking for about 10 years now, but I got started off doing internet broadcasting work and uh, migrated into documentaries. Interesting. Well, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit more about that path and, and uh, how you how you ended up there? And, and it's so funny to hear what you just said. Uh, you know, not haha funny, but that someone began ten years ago in internet broadcasting. That just sounds crazy. Wow, that is strange. You know? Yeah, we were. We were a early, pioneer, man. We were early in the game. Um, 
That's for sure. I, I uh, actually I came out of school with a uh, business degree in marketing and was self-taught in internet back. You know, this is like '98 when the internet was really big business and everything. You know, when had all that potential before the bubble burst, and uh, the first time around, and came out and uh, was doing industrial film and marketing and advertising and website design and ended up uh, working for a startup in Pittsburgh doing internet broadcasting work and uh, really low budget internet television stuff and I was actually doing video game reviews online and um, one thing led to another. We ended up uh, the company which became our distribution and company and studio in Intercom Entertainment. Uh, we were doing historical shorts, and we ended up doing documentaries, and then moved into DVD in 2001. And I produced uh, 10 uh, documentaries, about 11 documentaries actually since then. Wow! Yeah, I'm looking at the list here: Civil War minutes. You've got one on the Johnston, Johnstown flood. There's Gettysburg, the horses of Gettysburg, World War One, uh, and then of course coming. I, I believe it's next month, uh, the DVD release of Westinghouse. Uh, yeah, Westinghouse will be released on April 8th, and that's uh, the latest and I think the greatest. So, <laughs> <laughs> Where can people uh, see it? Is it just a clip so far, I would assume, since it's not out yet? Uh, the, that's that's the feature-length film. That's the release. Uh, it's, it's being released on DVD. So it's uh, you know everyone always points towards Amazon.com. That's we've been we've been working with Amazon for nearly a decade. Oh right, I, I meant can they see anything now? I mean, is there a trailer? Uh, yeah, if you go to YouTube, you can type in Westinghouse. If you go to um, our website, uh, westinghousefilm.com. There's also the Mark Bustler blog. Yeah, my blog, which I, I haven't updated in about about a month. I've actually been, um, I'm, in, I'm in limbo. I shouldn't say limbo. I'm in pre-production, which I call limbo because it's all paperwork and phone calls. I'm in pre-production on my next film, but in the meantime, I'm uh, actually was been back in uh, pushing classic uh classic video games on the internet again so I've, it's been about eight years but I have a new series back on the internet called Classic Game Room so huh. I, don't, I don't like to uh, sit idle very long <laughs> no you're a busy guy well let's talk about Westinghouse how did you end up uh, being interested in him and what did you learn about him and what can we look forward to you know what revelations will come from the film uh, well Westinghouse was a very important person and, and in fact in doing the research on the film I'll get to that in a moment, but I generally found that he was, he he is, in my opinion, the most important American of all time that has been lost in history as a person, yet his name is still famous because people know the name Westinghouse from all the appliances and the companies. Um, but I came across this subject because I, I'd done a, I had done a film previously on the 1893 World's Fair called Expo Magic of the White City. That's, that's the one that Gene Wilder narrated. And that has done really well for us, and I've just been fascinated in World's, World's Fairs ever since then. So I've been researching the 1939 World's Fair in New York, came across Electro, who was regarded as one of the first robots in the world, and he was like the talking robot for Westinghouse. And I had uh, talk, went over to the George Westinghouse Museum, which, was based in, which is based in Pittsburgh, and talked with the executive director there, and he turned me on to the story of George Westinghouse. So I ended up working in collaboration with the museum, which has since merged with the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. Um, but, at, but at the time, I'd worked with the George Westinghouse Museum for about six, seven months on research through their archives, which were very extensive. Uh, lots of paperwork that was from the 30s, written a lot of notes and letters written by people who had worked with George Westinghouse in the 1880s and 1890s. George Westinghouse invented the air brake, for trains, which was, was immensely important back in the day for saving the lives of thousands upon thousands of brakemen and expanding the country westward with longer trains. But what he's uh, best known for is pioneering practical alternating current electricity, which is what we use to power our computers and houses and lights and everything today. And this is where he got into the, the big raging debate with Tesla and Edison. Well, Tesla worked, he worked with, with, working with Tesla... Right, big debating with Edison. Yeah, and they competed with Edison and J.P. Morgan. And that's probably why we don't know the name of Westinghouse all that well. Edison, well, I mean, I suppose it'll be up to your, your documentary to help shape people's opinions, but Edison was certainly a better uh, marketer and uh, legal public debater <laughs> uh, perhaps even than he was inventor. Well, I think Edison is remembered today as that, as, as they said, as one of the historians in the films, that consummate inventor that all Americans think of. 
And he was, in my opinion, the pioneer of the modern marketing method where he was using film, he was using radio, um, he liked to get out there and talk about himself. He was a real like, he was a real flamboyant celebrity. Westinghouse was a very quiet, reserved engineer. And that's one of the reasons we have so much interest in the film from engineering societies across the United States and technical magazines and, and uh, inventors. It's because I mean, Westinghouse was not a dramatic, eccentric person like Howard Hughes or Edison. He was very... He was very reserved. He was a normal family guy. He, had, you know, he stayed with his wife his whole life. He wasn't out dating movie stars. So his story himself, I mean, he wasn't, he's not the kind of guy you'd make an action film about. But when I got into the documentary and I just saw how exciting everything that he did was, uh, that just turned into a nice film, and especially with the resources that I had to work with. And being that I am based in Pittsburgh and that the majority of the Westinghouse story takes place in Pittsburgh, uh, certainly didn't hurt either. Very interesting. I, I see here your the synopsis ends with he was an honest millionaire in the days of robber barons, an optimist in the days of skeptics, and a generous CEO from whom today's executives can learn. That's that's quite a bit. It sounds like you ended up admiring him quite a lot. I I, I do. I, I like the fact that he was a, a decent person and was still able to accomplish so much of what he did, and he was very humble. And just it's it's just such an American thing, you know. He he wasn't rewarded for being humble um, at all. In fact, the way history has pretty much forgotten him just just shows that we really respect people that are far more flamboyant and self-destructive. Now, anyway, um, you know, he he might have been. There have been eras of of humanity where reserve and um, decorum were were much better appreciated. You know, he he might have fit in with the. 18th century England or something like that, I suppose. But uh, it's what was his era? I mean, when did he die? He died in 1914, and I mean, even at the time, because he his workforce loved him. He had in the 1890s, he had his air brake company and the Westinghouse Electric Company. He was employing tens of thousands of primarily immigrant workers in his companies in his factories at the same time when Andrew Carnegie was employing tens of thousands of immigrant workers. Now, Carnegie had his workers working seven days a week, 12 hours a day without break. They were uh, kept drunk half the time by the local bars. They were not paid well. They uh, were just, uh, you know, they had lots of lots of limbs were cut off. And these people, by the time they were in their 30s, it was said that they were about half dead. Uh, now, George Westinghouse helped his workers get educated. He gave them, uh, the first, he invented the modern-day weekend. He gave them Saturdays off which was unheard of at the time for a major employer. So they had five-day weeks, and they, they loved him. They built a monument to him in Pittsburgh after his death. Um, so he was, he was very well respected, but, it, but in the end, in 1907, one of the, one of the key points in the film is, is that he was such a nice guy and such a generous person that he sort of left himself open to be taken over uh, by some pretty ruthless business people uh, and, and actually lost one of his major companies, but... He was he was very well respected, but uh, even then you could see that uh, it was still you know still vicious business people were the ones that were able to take the lead. Nice guys finish last, unless they're Mr. Westinghouse, I guess, huh? He well, at least didn't finish back. last. He's uh, his his name is is one of the most respected names, and it's just that it's not a household name as a person. So I think that the, that's one of the key things in the film is that. It's, you know the name Westinghouse, but now you know why you know the name Westinghouse. Yeah, it's true. We don't use uh, Edison appliances, do we? <laughs> well, you sort of do. You have GE, but <laughs> that was that was uh, sort of a, a, a what were they called? The trust. That was a trust. Yeah, the the Edison saga. I, I've looked at that pretty carefully as a uh, uh, you know quote unquote historian of 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 recording history, and obviously he played a really vital role in in early recording, but as much as the in, uh, as the invention, what he did, as you mentioned earlier, was he really got out and popularized it, you know. Well, Ed- Edison's um, phonograph, the phonograph for the Edison player, what was, what was it called? It was, that was the, uh, the, uh, the cylinders. He, he, he invented that, that right around the same time that Westinghouse was pioneering his air brake and, and perfecting the automatic air brake. So I actually uh, there's a nice parallel there between uh, between modern interest in, in gadgets that are fun and exciting, and then things that are of industrial nature and actually improve the world. 
because the air brake saved thousands of lives and got fairly little press, but the phonograph, of course, was hailed as the greatest invention of all time. And really, it was. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. Well, unfortunately, we are about out of time. I hear the music coming up to let us know we're at the end of our hour. I do appreciate uh, you coming on the show. And uh, I'm actually really looking forward to I watched the, uh, the YouTube trailer earlier today, and I'm really looking forward to the Westinghouse video myself. I'm going to at least rent it. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of a science geek, so I may end up picking up a copy of this myself. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show, Mark. Well, thank you very much. The DVD is due out next month. It is called simply Westinghouse. It is about the life and times of George Westinghouse. It joins Mark Bussler's other uh, documentary DVDs, many of which are available now. Thank you again to Mark Bussler, to Lucas McNelly, to Mike C. and Josie Outlaw of the AKAs, and to Martin Beatty, who started off the show with us tonight. Learn more about all of tonight's guests at blogtalkradio.com slash radio and learn about other shows on the Blog Courage Radio Network at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. This has been BC Radio Live. We're here every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast to have it delivered to you each week or listen to the audio archives. Until next week, aloha! With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.